Ayn Rand is best known as the author of Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead, and as a champion of capitalism and the political ideals of America's founding. In the United States, this often causes her to be placed on the so-called political right, sometimes even labeled a conservative, but in any case associated with Paul Ryan, Ted Cruz, and the like. She was, however, an atheist and highly critical of the conservatives. And at a deeper philosophical level, she was highly critical of religion and faith. One of her early lectures after the publication of Atlas was entitled Faith and Force, the Destroyers of the Modern World. The philosophical antidote to that, the path towards a future of progress, she argued, was, you can put it broadly, reason, and more specifically, her philosophy of objectivism. So let's talk today about some of Rand's views on God, religion, reason, and atheism. Welcome to the New Ideal Podcast. My name is Ankar Gatte, and I'm joined by my colleague, Robert Mayhew, a professor of philosophy at Seton Hall University. Hi, Robert. Hey, Ankar. Hello. So let's start with this question. I think this is a, it's a good place to start. So Rand said of religion, quote, that it's an early form of philosophy, unquote, and that, quote, philosophy is the goal towards which religion was only a helplessly blind groping, close quote. So you're both an expert on Rand's thought and on ancient Greece, Greek philosophy. And I think of that, that's the birth of the subject of philosophy in the Western world. So what do you think Rand means by this? What is she getting at? Well, I think we have to begin with her conviction that philosophy, or something like it, serves a crucial a human need, that we are not hardwired with the tools that we need to survive. I mean, we have a faculty, a conceptual faculty, a faculty of reason, but we don't have fixed in us a set you know, of indications uh, or, that, or instincts that uh, you know, uh, enable us to, to survive in the world. We need a set of abstract principles of some kind. And yet you can't expect from man emerging from the cave or whatever to have the sophisticated methodology that enables him to acquire these principles. That would be to have a philosophy before you have a philosophy. Um, so we needed to do something to fill that need. And as far as, I've never studied this carefully, but as so far as I can tell, um, Virtually in every culture, what happened was um, people created uh, causes of the things in the world uh, that they could not explain, and um, they, they built a whole, there was a whole system of beliefs of this nature that enabled them to cope with the world. So, uh, and I think what they did, and again, I haven't given this a, a lot of thought, but um, they projected the kind of causality that they understood in the world. There wasn't a fire and then there was a fire. Well, some entity created it. Um, there was a soldier coming towards them and now he's dead. Someone caused that to happen. So I think they projected that on certain beings, gods, uh, who explained you know, earthquakes and lightning, etc. And they also needed a, a code of ethics of you know, how to live in the world to manage the, uh, their, their existence. And um, for that, too, they depended on uh, the gods. Um, so in the ancient Greek world, for example, 
you have, I mean, there's evidence going back to, you know, deep into the Bronze Age, but certainly by the time we get the Homeric epics in the, let's say, roughly the 8th century, uh, and in Hesiod uh, in the 7th, um, you have this, these Olympian gods who each have a certain domain that they control. So if, if an earthquake happens or uh, tidal waves, that's Poseidon doing it. Um, and the strongest god of all, of course, is Zeus. And Hesiod tells us, for example, that um, Zeus gave human beings a law and justice so that we would not be like the animals of, of the jungle. And I think that's a kind of, that was a system, but you can see how primitive that is, although it's understandable. Um, now, what the philosophers do is they come along and they start taking a step back. They don't just passively accept the beliefs, because if you ask your average uh, 6th century Athenian, why do you believe uh, Athena is a special guardian of yours? Why do you have these whole set of rituals about prayer and going to the temple and pouring libations to the, over the dead or what have you? Uh, why do you do all that? It's not because they don't have a worked out um, set of arguments. This is what my dad told. Well, this is you know, what, what my ancestors bestowed to me. And it was only in, and that's a complicated issue uh, why it happened here, um, but it was only at a certain time where, uh, where some of these ancient Greeks took a step back and asked, you know, there's a lot of reasoning been going on. People had the faculty of reason. They used it in all sorts of ways. And they started using this reason to, to, to raise questions about um, this religion, uh, this, the Olympian religion, the, the views they had. And um, at that point, what you get is a sort of a tearing down of, of the, what was the standard views. And by the time you get the, to the fifth century, you, there's a real clash between it. But you can see from that perspective, uh, by the time you get to the philosophers and even the early philosophers, what we call the pre-Socratics, there's a sophistication to their beliefs in contrast to which the, the other religion, the, the other the philosophy of, let's say, um, the Olympian religion is primitive by comparison, right? Yeah, so, but that's I why I think- a question um, about that, but, yeah. but let me add, so one way I think about it is that in effect, religion and philosophy are asking the same questions. It's, mm -hmm. it's much more explicit and conscious for philosophy that we're asking these questions, we're trying to answer them. But they're in some broad sense, they're both trying to give you a worldview. So to give yeah, you that's... some kind of account, like this is the world in which I live, and therefore this is how I need to function and this is what I should do in it. And in philosophy, we put that, it gives you a metaphysics and an epistemology and an ethics. And I think that is the kind of core of philosophy. So it's, I don't think a religion's very, when we're talking at this primitive level, very consciously asking those questions, but in effect, that's the need that people have right. these questions either at a more implicit level or more explicit level. And so they're focused on the same questions. So then on the issue then of what is differentiating philosophy from religion, if they're, of how it's both, so I think both in the way it's raising the questions and in the way it's trying to answer them. And in thinking of it in the ancient Greek world, how much do the early philosophers, the pre-Socratics, as you said, think of themselves as like, consciously as doing something than what these more religious people with their worldview do? So how much are they 
consciously thinking of, okay, what we're doing is different from what the, our traditional religious or religious figures do? And that's a good question. And um, I think it differs from, uh, and there's, there's a lot of controversy, partly because we have so little information about these, these philosophers. Some of them, like Parmenides and Empedocles, are very religious in their language. Um, and they see themselves almost as present, and I think Pythagoras would be the same way to the extent that we, we can uncover his views. They're presenting a more rational uh, religious philosophy that, than the alternative. Others, I think, are very destructive. I think they're explicitly, at, I mean, the first explicit attack on Olympian religion we get is from Xenophon, uh, sorry, Xenophanes, um, who's the, you know, fourth of the early philosophers, if you have, you know, Thales, Anaximenes, uh, Anaximander, Anaximenes, then you get Xenophanes, and he actually presents, you know, an argument, so far as we can tell, against anthropomorphic, and not against God, any God, but against the idea of the anthropomorphic gods, gods that look like human beings. Um, he thinks they're clearly inventions of every different, you know, an indication of that is that each culture, culture seems to believe in gods that look just like them, and, you know, what's the chance of that? Happening, and I think uh, you know Heraclitus, for example, has, if you can understand his maxims, to you know, if we can interpret them correctly, he seems to be criticizing um, religious rituals as irrational. Uh, you know, there are ritual purifications where you purify yourself by having blood poured on, and he said that's purification. You know, so th there's clearly um, that kind of attack going on, and then I think when you get to the sophists. In the fifth century, uh, they're um, they're bringing the the big guns out in a way against religion, and um, and they're drawing an unfortunate consequence, but an inevitable one. Namely, if the Olympian gods are the source of religion, and philosophy has proven that there's no rational uh, basis for belief in the Olympian gods, then there goes ethics in effect uh, in you know in various ways. I think the sophists uh, uh, held that. Um, so there was, uh, there was this, um, I think, trend among the, the pre-Socratics to view uh, philosophy as you know, a real challenge to the Olympian religion. And part of what Socrates seems to be doing is wanting to put a halt to that, to, uh, be more, to, have, to develop a philosophy that's more respectful to uh, piety as a virtue, let's say. And then if we fast forward then a just a little bit to get to Plato and particularly Aristotle, certainly Rand viewed Aristotle, I think is one of the ways she put it, he's the first intellectual in the Western world. I think on a different way you could put it, she thinks of his as the first scientist and who thinks of philosophy as a science that you have to have evidence arguments for you build theories upon that and you can then establish certain views as true and other views as false. It's not that he's the first to look at it like that, but he's the first systematic um, right. thinker and in that sense, the first intellectual. And I, I would think that her view and what we're talking about that she sees it, religion as an early form of philosophy, that when you really get philosophy is with Plato as sort of discoverer of all the questions and Aristotle as, here's some of the crucial answers and the way to answer these questions, like the method 
of answering these questions. I, I take it like that's how I view her her perspective on that we're getting philosophy now as a separate subject and as really the first science. Right, and no longer a primitive groping after it. And the unfortunate thing, and I think on her view as well, is that yeah, Plato asks all the questions. He's the first systematic philosopher. He has a worked out metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, political philosophy, aesthetics. There's a philosophy of education in there, arguably. Um, and yet, it's a philosophy that aims at um, presenting a, uh, I, I would argue, it's more religious, um, given how one might uh, uh, define that term, it's more religious than the primitive religion that had come in the past. Because the, what's interesting to me about the Olympian religion is they never really viewed it as supernatural. They could not wrap their mind around that. So if you look at a map of the ancient world according to Homer's Odyssey, let's say, you know, the, the shades, our, our shadow is what kind of survives our death, and it's not a very nice place but we go to beyond the river sticks, that's a place to the West, right? And Mount Olympus is up there somewhere. And, you know, there's, there's impediments to our getting there, right? You, you get in trouble if you try to climb it. Um, but, but they never really made this supernatural, d d divorced from what we call, I mean, it's a redundant term, physical reality, right? Um, and with Plato, you get that. Uh, you get this, and I think he sees that as necessary to save what is valuable in religion and to, to answer the sophists and to solve all the philosophical problems that the, the uh, pre-Socratics were struggling with. So the result is you get I mean, brilliant works of philosophy uh, from Plato, uh, very systematic, but the metaphysics, the epistemology, the ethics, it's all, I mean, the ethics is certainly not as bad as what's to come, I think, um, but, uh, the rest is, is in a way, it's a, a supernatural philosophy in certain respects that has replaced a primitive religion that was tenuously um, otherworldly, but or barely. And then Aristotle, I think, yep. to the extent that he rejects Plato, um, has has moved beyond. We we get a really a strong this worldly philosophy. It's focused on this world with a tinge of some platonic elements, like a belief in God, but it's a very boring God from the point of view of religion. I mean, you can't, I don't think there's a religion that, that you can hang on the prime mover. And would you say as well, I wanna come back to the issue of the supernatural and how Ayn Rand thinks about that, but looking at it from the birth of philosophy and the ancient Greek world and these thinkers, these philosophers, do you think of, Aristotle's unmoved mover as an element of a supernatural. So in contrast, say to Plato and it positing another dimension, there's ways in which certainly the way I read Plato is it is, it's above nature. I mean, supernatural means above nature. It's a different kind of place with different kinds of rules, different kinds of principles. This world is a half reflection of it. It's, it Aristotle, when you say there's platonic remnants do you think of that as there's supernatural remnants or is it more that he's thinking of these as somehow part of the natural world it's both and that's the contradiction in a way because he does describe them as you know immaterial elements they don't 
uh, matter, and and yet in some ways perhaps they do. Um, and I think in the day Kylo, he, uh, he he actually locates where the prime movers are, and I mean they have a certain relationship to planets and things of that sort. But it's um, yeah, I, it's not really supernatural, and, and but yeah, it's it's hard to articulate because it is there's a certain contradiction there. But it's not this whole other realm of gods that are important. They are they're kind of motors. Uh, in, in a certain respect. Um, and even when he talks about the possibility of the immortality of the soul, uh, he makes it clear if anything survives the death of the body, it would be the rational faculty, but disconnected from our memories or anything, it would have to be some kind of, it's un, very unclear, but there's nothing, it really is a faint remnant, I think, um, and uh, uh, and and strikingly different from 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 Plato and Aristotle's the Aristotle's intellectual heir Theophrastus, he basically, so far as we can tell, he did away with the prime movers. He didn't think they were necessary. If um, why couldn't you just attribute you know whatever the features are of the prime mover? Why can't you just uh, attribute that those to the the celestial bodies themselves? And um, that didn't lead to any kind of rift with Theophrastus. So I don't think it, I can't imagine it was all that important uh, to Aristotle. Um, and there's some interesting, I mean, there's some unfortunate things. Uh, I mean, even in the, the best city uh, described in politics, book seven and eight, he, uh, he thinks that there are gonna be officials, one of the officials that will exist are priests and they'll be conducting the rituals. So he thought that there would have to be some kind of civic religion, but. Uh, there aren't a lot of details, and that that could have been an unfortunate um, nod uh, or concession to what he thought was uh, people as they exist, uh, uh, non-philosophical types, I don't know. And now to relate this to the way Rand, I think, is viewing both the Western thought, Western history, the way she thinks about religion. So we frame this, or I frame this as she talks about it as an early form of philosophy, that philosophy is the goal toward which religion was, an on, was only a helplessly blind groping, that's a quote, that religion, I think of it, part of what that means is religion has a different standing pre-philosophy and post-philosophy, so that you could think of people pre the discovery of philosophy by the ancient Greeks and some of the, the thinkers that who you've been talking about as it's non-rational. So when they posit, well, there's a God, Poseidon, who's, that's why the seas are angry and so on. That is, it's an attempt at an explanation. They're making reference to, often to the form of causality they know. Like when I get angry, I smash things. And so the, the sea's smashing our boats, mm -hmm. the sea's angry and someone, but it's, so it's trying to make sense and explain things. In a, but it's in a non-rational way. It's like, you don't actually have evidence for this. And so, but they're not sophisticated enough to know, oh yeah, we don't have evidence for that, but we're believing it anyway. And so it's non-rational. Mm -hmm. But when you get then to religion in a post-philosophy world, or so with, when the, the science or the subject of philosophy is discovered and substantial progress is made by, um, I mean, certainly by Aristotle, but I think other Greek thinkers. And then if you think more broadly, as there's scientific and mathematical knowledge, a great deal that's being discovered 
in the Greek world and that they're conscious of there's better and worse methodologies. Like you need the right method to get knowledge. And if you just go by whatever you feel or what you guess, or that's not what it means to have knowledge. Then when you get religion in that context, um, it's a different phenomenon and it goes from the non-rational to the anti-rational or you could put it the irrational but there's some now and you had put it already by the fifth century there's some kind of real conflict and i think certainly after and when you see the rise of christianity but i know you've read a lot about this that it's i mean religion and philosophy are at war with one another it's not now oh it's just a primitive form of philosophy or something like that Right, and, and, and moving way ahead, but I'll come back to, to that. Um, she casts it in the form of, of a very primitive kind of thinking. Uh, there's that line in the metaphysics versus the man-made uh, where she talks about, um, you know, modern people are not apt to think that uh, mystical incantations will bring rain, but they are very likely to think that um, the universe requires a cause. And so I think she's associating that with, with a kind of primitive thinking. And she's saying, in effect, you people who accept that the cosmological argument or whatever, you're basically like those primitives who think lightning needs a, 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 con you know, a, a conscious being uh, to, to, um, to explain it. Um, and in, in Atlas, when it's more severe, you know, the savage who says, that you know um the savage who hasn't learned to speak who uh says that you know who claims that existence requires a cause i mean she's calling it a savage for a reason i think it's very primitive thinking but it doesn't have the justification that an eighth century um bc greek would have in believing in zeus right um yeah. now uh now to get back there, it's complicated that uh, once with the emergence of Christianity, you get a different kind of clash. You get those Christians who think, um, I mean, Christianity is interesting. It, it arises out of Judaism, which is, um, Eastern religion, but it's very much in the context of the Greco-Roman world. And I mean, the New Testament is written, is in, is in ancient Greek. Um, one clash that you find among uh, Christians are those who think we, re we reject philosophy entirely as um, pagan, right? And we don't, I mean, then there are passages in, in some of Paul's letters that uh, these, these thinkers, like Tertullian, uh, they, they hung on to as, as you know, support for their side, that the very nature of philosophy, the idea of asking metaphysical and epistemological and and, uh, and questions about ethics, that's going to lead you to, um, into trouble, right? It's, it's, um, it's really bad news. And you had other early Christians who said, no, philosophy is really, and it's interesting that it was always Plato's philosophy or almost always. They definitely didn't like the Epicureans and they didn't, weren't crazy about uh, Aristotle, but the, the Plato especially, and to some extent the Stoics, that's what they went for. And they said, yeah, pagan philosophy is useful but it has to be, uh, serve uh, you know, defending a religious truth. Or if people start criticizing, um, let's say the, the doctrine of the Trinity, right? Or the, the notion of Jesus as being man and God, 
we have to be able to have conjure up philosophical arguments to answer them. Um, so there, there was a kind of, there was a tension within uh, early Christianity as to whether philosophy was a value at all. But if you see what philosophy is supposed to do, it was a very anti-philosophical philosophy, if you understand what I mean. So you have these, these early philosophers who have very sophisticated metaphysics to explain the Trinity. But what's clear is that that is something we, we can know, uh, we grasp by faith, and then we try to use um, philosophy to support it. And that, that um, what is Ayn Rand's line about every bad philosophy is a system of rationalization or, or something like that. We, we get that in a big way in the early, um, in the early period. And um, it's especially true because in, in the early period, before Christianity became the official religion of Rome, you had all these other philosophers that were thriving. You had all sorts of pagan philosophers. You had pagan Platonists and Aristotelians and Epicureans and Stoics, and they all had views. And, and so a lot of the Christians thought, um, if we want to survive, we have to, um, we have to come up with arguments. Uh, so, but it's a very different kind of, of philosophy. So they don't reject philosophy, but they do in its purest form, that, that's for sure, and given its, its proper function or role. Um, but by the time Christianity becomes um, the official religion and it has the power of, of um, it has the power of, of the state behind it and Justinian closes all the pagan schools, I think in 529, then the urgency of having a Christian philosophy isn't so great, I think, even though it, it's going to have a history after that. Um, okay, there's two things here that I think would be worth talking about. So one is the way that Ayn Rand then thinks of herself as an atheist in light of the fact that um, religion is faith-based. It's a, when, I mean, obviously her as a 20th, 20th century figure, it's in the context of now not just the discoveries of the ancient Greeks, of the discovery and formulation of philosophic truths, but you get the uh, scientific revolution and you get the enlightenment and you get the industrial revolution into the 20th century. So the idea that you could take seriously religion as a means of uh, holding, forming or holding ideas, whether, and I think whether we're talking about sort of, um, uh, let's put it one way, it might be put factual ideas about the earth's 4,000 plus years or old, or it's circulate, I mean, the sun circula circulates around the earth, or, I mean, there's a whole bunch of other things that they had claims about or if you take it about normative issues, that the way to live is to honor your father, father and mother, because that's in one of the commandments, and so, that you can't take any of that seriously um, in the modern world and given modern science and philosophy and the discovery of reason, if we put it, reason, logic, uh, and science. So one of the ways that the, that, uh, Ayn Rand, but you can put her philosophy, objectivism, describes itself is as it's 
we're intransigent atheists, but not militant ones. I'll read a quote about that. And the, but the other thing I think I want to talk about as well of what you were bringing up is the idea that the arguments you get in religion, and you could put this particularly about the arguments for the existence of God, but for it's for other things what you were bringing up for making sense of the Trinity that this is no, it's not self-contradictory. You can make sense of this. So the arguments being being advanced are not really about a quest for the truth, even if they're couched for. We have religious truth and we're trying to, it's, mm -hmm. it's, we already have our conclusion. And now let's get an argument that supports the conclusion, not the other way around. We've got evidence that, and oh yeah, it leads inexorably to this conclusion. So that's the conclusion we have to arrive at. Um, so th this issue of it as rationalization, I think is worth talking about first, but let's take the, the first of these two the idea of it, objectivism as intransigent atheists, but not militant ones. So this is what one of the ways it was put, this is in 1965, this is from her, uh, Ayn Rand's then student and colleague, Nathaniel Brandon. And here's one of the ways it's put. You can, th there's a few things like this in the objectivist written corpus, but here's one of the most prominent. And he writes, uh, in an essay that was, it was actually a report to the readers of the objectivist newsletter, and this is what the, the newsletter in which this appeared. Quote, as, an as uncompromising advocates of reason, objectivists are, of course, atheists. We are intransigent atheists, not militant ones. We are for reason. Therefore, as a consequence, we are opposed to any form of mysticism. Therefore, we do not grant any validity to the notion of a supernatural being. But atheism is scarcely the center of our philosophical position. To be known as crusaders for atheism would be acutely embarrassing to us. The adversary is too unworthy. Close quote. Uh, yeah, so you want to comment on that? Yeah, I think... Um, um... That's a better statement than the one I usually think of, which is the one from a letter she wrote from, I think from 63. So probably not all that from the 60s. Um, but yeah, there were, I think the, 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 at that time, the poster child for militant atheism was, um, what is her name? Madeline Mary O'Hare. I don't, you, you know that figure? Um, she was she was the first president and founder of Atheists of America, American Atheists. That was a society um, that she founded, and she was a that was her issue. She was a crusader for um, uh, for atheism, and so she and some of the stuff she did was um, uh, I, I think she she uh, there was a lawsuit that she started to get prayer out of schools. She wanted um, in God we trust off money. But that was really her sole issue, and it was um, it wasn't a, attached to uh, any kind of deeper philosophy or even uh, a, I think a more fundamental set of political principles. I, I think she considered herself a materialist and a feminist, and but it was all kind of woozy. But her issue was atheism. That's what we have to defend. And from that, it's so puny an issue in that way compared to what Ayn Rand is doing in Atlas Shrugged. Um, uh, and the only other, the only other sense of, of militant atheists I've, I'm aware of that, that Ayn Rand might have been aware of um, 
is uh, in Soviet literature, in the official Soviet tra translations from Lenin, for example, into English that were distributed uh, to comrades around the world in the English-speaking world, militant atheist appears in those, uh, in those works. And um, as, as a positive, that is, it's part of the Marxist vision is that we have to use the organ of the state to um, minimize and, and reduce the influence of, of atheism. And I think that comes up in a way in that letter that she's responding to from 63, where the, the congressman is worried that, um, that uh, atheists and agnostics are gonna pass laws that, um, that make, uh, a, uh, that make uh, religion illegal or something like that. <laughs> that's the world we live in. And, and of course she's, she's saying this is ridiculous. That's not uh, what she's uh, about at all. She's uh, an intransigent uh, um, atheist, not a militant one. Um, but the intransigence, that means uncompromising, it's forceful. Now I've heard this, I mean, we've seen this passage quoted by people who think that objectivists should be nice to theists when they uh, discuss and debate these issues with them. But that's not what she's saying at all. And if, um, if you look at some of the other passages he, she, she claims on religion, um, uh, I think that's clear. But part of the intransigence is that, although that's not the focus, although it's not a crusading issue, um, every branch of philosophy, according to objectivism, has implications for uh, um, theism and atheism and religion. I mean, metaphysics, it's clearly a rejection of any kind of supernatural epistemology. In her epistemology, there's no room for faith. We can even, we can talk about that some. Uh, in ethics, um, I mean, Galt says in the speech, uh, the point is not to return to morality, but to discover it. She's, she's rejecting uh, two millennia of, um, uh, uh, of Christian ethics. Um, so across the board, and of course, although conservatives don't see it, there's, um, there's not any connection between her political philosophy and, and there's not any serious uh, non-superficial uh, similarity between her political philosophy and uh, religious conservatism. Part of the way I think about the intransigent, so one of the, uh, of her characters, I think who is most often portrayed or characterized as intransigent is Howard Rourke in The Fountainhead. And part of the, the intransigent is that the opposition he faces is not worthy basically of even thinking about, but certainly not worthy of engaging with. It's like, yeah, you might have a point about something and I could understand why you think. It's very irrational. And so here, I think part of the intransigence is if you take reason seriously, um, and it's that we're for reason and objectivism is a pro-reason philosophy. If you take reason seriously, you can't possibly take religion seriously. And so the idea that it, you would have debates about this and yeah, maybe you've got a point about this issue in morality or that issue in epistemology. No, it, and this is part of that. It's a very primitive pre-philosophical, pre-science viewpoint. So the idea that um, there's some commonality or touch points or something like that, I think is just from our perspective, 
not just wrong, but crazy that anybody would think that. And when you see, when she thinks religion in its most primitive form is on the rise, her attitude towards it is not, let's sit down and discuss. It's, um, this is the dark ages on the rise again. And whether it's, um, whether it was the, the rise of the Islam and the Ayatollahs in Iran, or the rise of the moral majority in the US, and she comments on both of these at near the end of her life. It's, um, I mean, she comments on it with contempt. I think, I mean, contempt might be too weak a word to, to say, uh, I mean, to characterize her attitude. Yeah, and there's a sense in which um, the intransigency, it wasn't, um, she didn't have to speak out on religion um, in the 50s and 60s. I mean, she did. She didn't like the, when Goldwater uh, was bringing religion and faith into his conservatism, but it wasn't, it was, it was not a major political, uh, it wasn't part of the political right, certainly, uh, or the left. And um, in that context, there wasn't the need to make a, a, a big issue of it. And even in the, in the Objectivist newsletter, um, she gave those questions to Brandon, if you recall. I mean, when she's asked about, does the universe require a first cause and um, aren't there certain things that are un inherently unknowable? Now, I, maybe it's coincidence, but I had the idea it was, I'm not gonna answer that. You know, I've written that Le Shrug and that should, uh, that should do it. And um, yeah, so. Uh, yeah, I, I get yeah, the sense I, when I read those old, old newsletters that that's part of what is going on here. Um, okay, so let's, I want to get to some questions, but I, I want to um, talk about at least about two issues that I had flagged that I think we should talk about. Um, so one is the issue of the supernatural, and the other is the issue of these arguments as rationalization. So maybe take that second one first the i mean i personally have never met or even encountered so encountered in reading or something somebody who i think is offering an argument for the existence of god that that i think it's because of this argument that they think a god exists that i always think both in conversation when i'm talking to people or what I'm reading, and even historical figures, even like someone like a Descartes who gives arguments for the existence of God, that they already believe God exists, and now they're fishing around, and that might be putting it a little too negatively, but they're searching or trying to find arguments to justify their faith, not, it's like a scientist for, and oh, there is another planet, or oh, there are electrons? I didn't know about that, but yeah, the evidence makes it that I've got to conclude that it, there's something like this. It's not at all like that. No, not at all. And they'll often say that. They'll often say that, I mean, they'll want to make it clear that my religious belief is not a product of argumentation. So, so tawdry a process as reasoning. It's deep faith. And then religion, the argument for the existence of God usually come in as what's called Christian apologetics, let's say, 
That is uh, apologia in the old, uh, in the Greek sense of the word as a defense. There's a whole literature of, of apologetics that is trying to uh, resist the, uh, the enlightenment thinkers, let's say, or the atheistic or, or agnostic thinkers. It's not, look, you know, there are atheists out there and if we can give them these really good arguments as to why they ought to change their views, that's not, not the case. Um, uh, they are after the fact defenses. And even the, I mean, the, the people who present the best arguments, if you want to call them that, someone like Thomas Aquinas, for example, it's not, um, it's not I'm a theist because of the, of the five ways or because of the ontological argument in the case of Anselm. Right? Uh, it's completely after the fact. And I think that has to be, if one is going to debate or discuss these issues with, um, with uh, a theist, you have to make that uh, clear. I mean, you can discuss the, the, the argument for the existence of God, but they, they don't have a primary role in, in, uh, in explaining the convictions of religious people. And yet often you'll get um, atheists discussing the question, is there a God or argument for the existence of God in the, I mean, I gave a talk recently where I compared it to the question, is there microbial life on Mars? I mean, that's a, a question that, you know, we don't know whether this exists or not. And there are people who say that, you know, is there a God is the same kind of question, but it is, and it's radically different. And you have to recognize that. I mean, putting aside the fact that there are issues with the very concept or, or let's say notion of God. Um, yeah, so let's turn to that as a, as a, last issue, because I think it's, I mean, that's the issue more broadly of the supernatural, but I think this first issue, that, I mean, this issue we were just talking about, that the arguments are offered after the fact, there's already the faith that's existing and the, the so-called belief in God. And so we're maintaining this, and as you said, they're often adamant, and I think they're fearful of the church as well, of saying, no, this is I believe, regardless of it, but I have arguments. And stuff. Um, but we could give these people who are so incalcitrant that they need arguments or that here's some, so as you put it, it's apologetics. I think the deeper philosophical issue is that if they were offering arguments, what you would have is just, okay, there's something more about the natural world that we didn't know, and here's an argument for, oh, okay, so this is part of the natural world. It's like the, the example you give of, of microbial life on Mars. It's, okay, we don't know this yet about the natural world, but if someone has some evidence and arguments for an asteroid brought uh, microbes to Mars, and so then it's, oh, okay, here's another element of the natural world. And if you're offering arguments and saying, yeah, the reason I hold this idea is the arguments and evidence in support of it, all you would be doing is having an argument for, yeah, there's like black holes. We didn't know about that before, but here's now. Enough. And what the real notion of God is, is something beyond the natural world. So the idea that you're going to point to the evidence and arguments in the natural world to get to God um, makes it that he's just part of the natural world. But the whole position is, He's above. He's super nature. He's not constrained by all these things in the natural world. And philosophically, 
He's not constrained as it's put in objectivism. He's not constrained by the basic axioms of reality or to put it a different way. He's not constrained by the nature of reality. And the most basic axioms in objectivism are that existence is, so or it's existence exists, but you can just put it as the basic concept, it's is or existence. And it has no cause, it has no alternative, there's no, um, it just is. That, and the first and primary thing to say about it is it is. And then it is what it is, it has a nature, it has an identity, it's limited, it is what it is and not what it is not. Um, as it's often put in objectivism, A is A, and it's not B. Um, and then that consciousness is a faculty of living things to perceive the world that exists. So the identity of what exists. And the, as you put it, the, it's not even a concept in objectivism, it's an anti-concept of God. The notion of God is a, I mean, I think in the end, it's an explicit war on those axioms. So part of what it means to say it's supernatural is, no, those axioms do not constrain God. He's above that, um, as though that has a meaning. And the, it, one of the deep philosophical issues is, does that have a meaning, to say something is above nature? Right. And, it, uh, um, and, and a lot of religious thinkers will claim it doesn't. That is, it, it's kind of, it's so special, you, all we can do is say what it isn't, uh, in effect. But um, you're right, there's, I mean, the, the cosmological argument is, say, I mean, we say existence exists, it just is. It's, no, no, we need an explanation for why there is something rather than nothing. Um, everything in it that exists, including the universe, has a specific identity. Uh, it just is what it is, right? That's the identity part. No, um, we need an entity that can explain why there are these causal laws, why there's this kind of complexity, etc. And then, uh, yeah, with, with consciousness as well, it's, um, well, clearly, if you're believing that there was a God before the creation of the universe, uh, there's consciousness that's disconnected from, um, uh, from reality, a consciousness conscious of nothing but itself, right? Um, it's a violation of, of all of those. And uh, you get that in the main argument. The cosmological argument is, uh, is in effect, in, in all its versions really, is asking for an explanation for existence. And the teleological argument, the argument for design, is asking about, and all the different versions of it, are, are, why is there this kind of complexity in the world, right? Um, so, um, and that's, I mean, and above that is the, the idea that they can't, they can't articulate what, uh, what God is. And they're, they're often, and that's a big part of mysticism and the, the literature of mysticism is that this is an entity uh, that can't be described by um, feeble human reason and language. And yet, and, I mean, and you get it. them that, what's that? I said, and yet they're talking about it. Yeah. Um, uh, and it it so the I think Ayn Rand's fundamental perspective on religion from a metaphysical uh, perspective. So its basic view of reality is it's a negation of this world. It, it wipes it out. 
and says the true reality is beyond existence, beyond identity, and beyond anything you know, anything you're conscious of. And in that way, when you th think of it as a negation of reality and then the human mind's ability to know that or the rational mind's ability to know that no if you're going to be in contact with true reality it's going to be some non-rational means that you have to use because reason is limited to the world of nature to the axioms and so on and yet true reality supersedes and is beyond that if you see it of it as a negation of reason and reality um you can understand that you would not think of it just as a benign phenomenon or even as so we were characterizing it in the 60s as it's hard even to take religion seriously that no one with an no one with an education anymore takes it seriously in an intellectual sense um that doesn't mean it's just a benign or relatively trivial force. It's just the it, there's a kind of perspective that we've gotten past this very destructive force. And I think when she's writing towards the end of her life, part of what is depressing her about the world is it seems to be retrogressing in this way that what we were past and what the enlightenment thinkers helped us get past is, oh no, we're not actually past and people are reverting back to this and taking it seriously in an intellectual way that was not true 30 or 40 years before. Right, and, and she uh, sees and that this, relates, uh, so, I think- uh, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and I think um, she mentioned in, in uh, in biographical interviews talking about her past in Russia, that she viewed Russian Orthodox Christianity the same way she later viewed upon seeing it through newsreels, um, voodoo rituals. She said it was, um, that is when she discovered, when she heard about voodoo, uh, that was, she had the same reaction to that that she had had earlier to uh, Russian Orthodox Christianity, something very dark and evil and irrational. Um, and I think when you come to the US, I imagine the Christianity that she encountered there was fairly subdued in comparison and more private. And there were moments like, uh, I think it was Apollo 8, is that where they read from the Bible uh, when they're orbiting uh, the moon? I think it's Apollo 8. She was very bothered by, by that. But it's, and then in her letters with Goldwater, she's, she's unhappy about Faith, but it really emerges when you get Reagan and the um, and the moral majority. And for people who weren't around then, to see people like Jerry Falwell and the moral moral majority visiting the White House and being, you know, confident that they now have uh, um, uh, access to political power, it it is eerie and and um, yeah, pretty yucky. Uh, and you could you could see her in the course of her life. Um, being kind of down about that, that's for sure. So we have one question that connects to this directly. And let me read, I'm not gonna read the whole of it, but let me read part of it. Um, and it, it's a common kind of question. So one thing that confuses me is why certain intellectuals like Ayn Rand take such issue with religion. 
In the United States, or at least where in the portion of the United States where the questioner lives, some of the most religious people are actually those who seem to best understand freedom, individual liberty, political freedom. The founders of America, who Ayn Rand regards as great intellectuals, were, were, were religious themselves. Meanwhile, the nihilistic and socialist philosophy that is gripping our culture uh, now is atheistic. And so the question is, like, how do you how do you think about this? How do we think Ayn Rand thought about that? You want to take a stab? Uh, I'll say some. Well, I'll answer part of it. Maybe you can take a part of it uh, as well. I think I think it's a mistake to rely on anecdotal. Because I've heard this kind of thing as well. Um, I would much rather have a, you know, I have a neighbor who's religious. He goes to church every Sunday. He's a really decent neighbor, would never, you know, steal my, my stuff or whatever. They're good people. Um, yeah, I think there are a lot of those people in America. There's a lot of compartmentalization where um, they live rich, happy lives, uh, pursuing values here on earth. They, you know, a person could be an engineer, so in their career, they're quite rational. Uh, and yet they were raised religious, so they have a certain uh, um, religious practices they adhere to, and they go to church on Sunday. Uh, now, I think it's impossible to have that and not have it undercut your happiness to some extent. But you could, you know, these people exist. And I think to the extent that they keep it private, um, it's better for them and it's better uh, culturally. Uh, but when it becomes a part of the actual culture in a deeper sense, it's really bad. Um, and we can talk about rungs of hell in a particular year vis-a-vis -vis the left, let's say, but it can be very bad. And I think um, the, the rights, if we wanna use that terminology, their commitment to anything like a genuine liberty has descended uh, in proportion, I think, to, to how serious they take religion. Uh, and I think you, you see that, um, uh, I mean, I can't think of people who have a really solid grasp of freedom, liberty, individual rights, and a capacity to defend it, and at the same time are deeply religious and are vocal about that and are adamant about that too. Um, so do you want to add to that? And I think, so part of the question was looking at it historically, bringing up the founding fathers and then bringing up socialism, communism as atheistic, aren't the founding fathers on the side of religion? I think historically, that's a mistake to think of it like that. And it's, it's a major mistake to think of it like that. So the founding fathers are coming out of the enlightenment period the enlightenment is at war with religion i think in essential terms what the enlightenment is doing is trying to enthrone reason it's our means to knowledge if we want to be enlightened if we want light to shine in it's we need to follow reason and get rid of the apparatus of religion get rid of the supernatural get rid of miracles get rid of the, the, all the anti-reason elements in religion. It's certainly some of the Enlightenment thinkers think there's elements of religion you can preserve. I think most significantly and most tragically in a sense is they think you can preserve religious morality 
but strip it of the its anti-reason elements. Um, so one of the the example, and to use the founding fathers, one of the examples of this is Jefferson editing the Bible, cutting out the miraculous from it, and so on, and keeping things like the Sermon on the Mount, and viewing it as you could rationally justify this. They never give a rational justification of religious ethics, but that's you have that kind of element. But I think if you're looking at it sort of as, as a historical trend, this is the Western mind and Western intellectuals discarding the religion of the dark and middle ages and trying to replace it with reason. And the founding fathers are part of that whole trend. And the, their political achievement is to place the use of force so the, the power that the state wields under the control of reason, the whole view of the constitution is, and, and, and the constitution in the context of individual rights is these are the powers that the government has to possess to ensure and protect our rights. And it has to wield these powers rationally. So it can't wield them on the basis of faith. And this is part of the argument for a separation of church and state and the idea that You've got deeply religious people who are separating church and state and saying political power can't be wielded by religion. That, like, I don't think that integrates. And even when you look at the particular founders, the idea that they're deeply religious, I think in the most part is not true. And then to think of socialism or communism as atheistic, I think is a mistake. It's not a mistake at the most concrete level to say what they're erecting is not the Christian God and saying you have to be on your knees to the Christian gods. But if you're asking more broadly, do they still have this element of the supernatural, of people who are beyond the, the normal natural world who somehow know things about the way history works and the dialectic of history and so of the sort of the leaders of the party in the movement, there's a real deep mysticism in communism and socialism. And in Atlas Shrugged, part of the way that Ayn Rand classifies is you've got the mystics of spirit who are more the religionists, and you've got the mystics of muscle who are more the communists and the socialists. But they're of spirit and of muscle are the qualifiers. The essence is they're mystics, that they're abandoning reality and reason and trying to erect some kind of supernatural viewpoint that you have to know by faith. Um, and in that sense, she sees them as deeply connected. I indeed think she thinks of the communists and socialists as coming out of religion, that you can't understand them unless you see that what they're doing is taking all kinds of elements from religion, and this means particularly from Christianity, and giving it a different quasi, but not real secular form, like it's natural and it's scientific. So, so they're trying to pretend they're scientific while being mystics. Um, and that I think was her perspective. And just for a kind of small glimpse of this, already in the fountainhead, it's you've got Ellsworth Tui. And he goes from wanting to use religion 
to subjugate people to, oh, no, I've got something better, communism, socialism. But it's not portrayed as this is a big change. It's portrayed, it's the same thing in essence. And I think that's what her view was. And it, that it's an important view, both to understand Rand's perspective, but I think she's right. So to understand the historical progression, I think that's the way to look at it. And she, um, she regarded Russia as the worst, most mystic country, certainly of, of, uh, of Europe. And that it was not a coincidence that unlike you know, what Mark, Marx expected uh, communism to take hold earlier in, in um, the UK or France or Germany, it, it took place, it arose successfully in Russia. And that was not in, in her view, I think, or in reality, uh, disconnected from its, its deep uh, mysticism. And then there's the, the, the precepts of, of Christianity, the, um, from each according to its ability, uh, to its ability to, to each according to his need. That's, that's from the Acts of the Apostles on you know, how uh, a religious society should be uh, organized. I mean, it's, it's all there. So we're, we're going to continue the discussion in Clubhouse uh, after we end this podcast and we're at the hour. So I wanna draw it to a close, but I wanna take, we've got a super chat question from Shazbot. Thank you for the, the contribution. Let's take this and it's a little more lighthearted question though I think there's some significant things to be said about it. It's, have you seen the life of Brian? What do you think of its message regarding religious belief? I have seen the life of Brian. Um, it's disrespectful to say the least. I remember finding it very funny, but I don't quite know um, uh, if I can't draw out any deep uh, themes about it. it. I mean, it does see there being something um, very, uh, you know, no special meaning to the origin of, of Christianity. Uh, but I mean, culturally, what I find interesting um, about the life of Brian is um, comparing the reaction to that film, uh, particularly by the right and the left, to if you can imagine, per impossible, uh, um, someone making a film like that uh, on the Quran uh, or the founding of Islam. Um, what happens in the case of the life of Brian, in the case of uh, the musical, uh, um, what is it, the Book of Mormon, and then someone uh, treating comically um, the Koran, I think, um, yeah, it's just, <laughs> you, you, you uh, that last possibility would get people killed, and we don't see that with the life of Brian. In fact, it was, um, in places like Scott, there were the places where it was banned by law and you had people on the left um, complaining about that. But yes, it was really disrespectful to, um, if you're a Christian, if you're not, I mean, I'm a big, I was at the time a, a big Monty, Monty Python fan. I prefer uh, Monty Python, the Holy Grail. But um, uh, yeah, that's the only, the, the kind of the thoughts I've had about that movie, I haven't seen it in quite a while, uh, are more as a kind of shining a light on different attitudes towards um, the criticism of, uh, um, if you think of uh, the Charlie Hebdo uh, and, and the reaction to that. And, yeah. 
I think also looking at it from some of the from some of what we were talking about, and particularly this issue of being an intransigent atheist and not a militant one. And if you think of that in a, a bit wider context, and I think this is a view that Rand always stresses that it's useless to be against something unless you're for something. And so she's for reason and therefore against atheism and against the supernatural. But the primary is to be for reason. And I think the life of Brian, it's, I find parts of it funny. And I think it captures the religious mentality in certain ways very well. And particularly, you were bringing up earlier, Robert, about like most people are religious because their parents are religious or their grandparents are religious. It's the traditional element so that religion has a real tribal element. As if you think of tribe as it's just like a big family and things are passed down, that religion has that. And it's important when you're thinking about the phenomenon to think of it as it's tribal. And many people today, I think rightly are talking about a rise of tribalism. And I think a rise of religion is part of that um, because I think of religion as a, it is a tribal phenomenon. It can be relatively sophisticated or relatively primitive as a tribal phenomenon, but I think it is a tribal phenomenon. It captures that element. But if you're thinking of, yeah, but how should you live? What should you be doing? What does it mean to be an individual? What does it mean to be pro-reason? You don't get that. And this is in general, I think, true of, of Kind, kind of comic satire, it has its place. But if nobody is talking about what the positive is and offering a vision of that, um, it doesn't do anything to be against things. And what Ayn Rand offers is a positive vision of what it means to be pro-reason, what it means to be an individual. And this is part of, to go back to Howard Rourke, and you can describe him as intransigent. The, primary about him is not that he's fighting his enemies. The primary about him is he has a view of how to live, a positive view, and that's what his life is about. That's what he's pursuing. And I think the, the reason people respond to the Fountainhead is precisely because it offers a positive vision. It's not about primarily about we live in a world of second-handers and they're really bad. It's you could live a first-handed life and that's really good. Um, and that's what, if we're looking at an intellectual philosophical level, that's what's needed. And I think that you could put it that it, I would put it this strongly that Ayn Rand uniquely offers that in today's world, a positive view of what it means to live a life of reason. Okay, so let's uh, draw a line here the, the and, and so let me wrap up and then we will move the discussion over to Clubhouse for a little bit. Let me start with, if you want to do some further exploration, some further reading, I would start with, I made reference to this earlier, one of Ayn Rand's um, es essays, or it was a talk converted into an essay, soon after, I mean, just a few years after the publication of At the Shrug, that lays out much of her worldview and some of her thinking on the issues we've been talking about is an essay, it's in the book Philosophy 
who needs it. The essay is Faith and Force, the Destroyers of the Modern World. So you can find that in Philosophy, Who Needs It? And then up online is the Ayn Rand lexicon. And the lexicon takes excerpts from many of Ayn Rand's different essays that are organized by topic. And here's just some, but they're cross-linked. So if you go to the lexicon and look up atheism or God or faith or reason or religion, some of the major things we've been talking about, you'll see some of what she has to say about that, but you'll get cross-references to things like agnosticism, the supernatural and so on. So there's a lot you can explore in the lexicon that's relevant to if you're trying to understand uh, Ayn Rand's views about these things and some of what we've been talking about and see it some more in her own words. So those are the things I would refer as, as the next, as next steps if you're interested in exploring more. Next week on the podcast, we'll be doing a Q&A on objectivism. Feel free, and I mean, indeed, we want you to send in questions. They can be about some of the issues that came up this week, but more uh, widely about different aspects of objectivism. So we will be doing that next week. To send in questions, you can uh, email newideal at einran.org, and we'll look at all the questions that are sent in there. So that's next week, June 16th. And then, of course, uh, if you like this episode, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, give us a thumbs up on YouTube and more broadly on social media. This is being broadcast simultaneously on Facebook as well. So that helps us uh, gain an audience and helps us keep going. So please do that if you like what you saw. And now, as I said, we'll be moving to Clubhouse. And that is on Clubhouse, it's the Ayn Rand Club. And I mean, that will start up, I think in five, 10 minutes from now as we uh, close this room and open that up on Clubhouse. So I hope you can join us there, continue the discussion for a little bit. Thanks Robert for joining and uh, we'll talk in the podcast next week. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.